Yes, well, happy Good Friday. Um, welcome, welcome to the service, wherever you are listening from. If you're all the way over in Italy, um, around the corner in Amundford or Llanderville or Brunaman. Um, I don't know if, if we still have the phone thing um, set up for today, who knows. But wherever you're listening from, whether it's in um, the present or the future at some point, um, welcome, happy Good Friday. Um, it's good to be able to do something together, isn't it, to remember this day. So let me start off. I'm going to read a passage of scripture, just a verse or two from 1 Peter 2, to remind us what this is all about, and then we'll turn to God in prayer. Jesus, he himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Let's pray. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much that we come to you on a day that we can call Good Friday. Thank you that we come to you as a God who's given um, everything that you've given your only son for us. Lord, we thank you that you love us that much. Father, we pray um, as we come to kneel at the foot of your cross today to remember what the Lord Jesus um, has done for us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see our sin. Lord, we ask that not for uh, some morbid religious reason, but Lord, we, we want to see our sin so that we might see you wash it away. Father, we thank you that we come to you as a gracious father who's given to us your only son and who gives us your Holy Spirit. So we pray, Lord, as we meet this morning, as we open your word, as we sing and pray and hear of the cross, we pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, that we might see the Lord Jesus more clearly, that we might love him more dearly, Lord, that we might walk with him more humbly, and that we might worship you joyfully from the bottom of our hearts and for all of our days we pray amen 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 okay well um those of you who are familiar with amford evangelical church will know that on good friday we like to gather together and we like to do things a little bit differently now obviously we can't uh, gather together physically this morning so we're still doing that online and how this is going to look, how this is going to work is going to be different to uh, a normal Sunday service, even a normal Sunday service online as we've been doing it the last couple of weeks. Um, we've got a couple of readings prepped, which Jonathan Perry, it's not Jonathan, I did made this mistake yesterday, it's just simply John. Uh, John is going to um, share with us, he's going to read, and then in like a, as a response to that, um, I've got a couple of thoughts to share on each passage to help us think through Good Friday and what's going on. Um, and at the end of all that, hopefully we're gonna sing together as well. So uh, that's the plan. Um, I'm gonna switch the screens now so that only one of us will be appearing at a time. Um, John, you're gonna share what the readings are. So people yeah. have got a Bible with them, like an actual Bible, you can open your Bible you can find it heads up. The first one's Matthew 26. So you can get a little head start there, can't you? Um, but yeah, so give me a sec. I'm going to change the screen over and then John is going to read for us. There you go, Brad. Okay, so Matthew chapter 26, and we're going to read from verse 14. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible, then this is um, Matthew. Matthew is one of the biographies of Jesus. And we're going to read now part of the story of the night before Jesus uh, was crucified. Uh, if you want to find it in a paper Bible, it's about three quarters of the way through um, into Matthew. If you're looking through a kind of scrolling through a contents page, you're about three quarters of the way down. Look for Matthew and then chapter 26 um, from verse 14. Let's read God's word. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 silver coins. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, 
Surely not I, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The son of man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would be, betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on, my, on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the cock will crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go, here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12 arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, greetings rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached out for his sword, drew it out and struck the servant of the high priest cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day, I sit in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. 
Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Thanks, John. Um, so it's a massively familiar um, kind of set of images, isn't it? Um, pictures, occasions there near the end of Jesus's life where um, he's eating with his disciples, where they move to the garden, where Judas comes, where Jesus is first being interrogated by the high priests. Um, but one of the thoughts that I've had this week kind of making my way through this reading and other readings is how much of a handbrake turn the gospels, the stories of Jesus are in scripture. You know, like um, I've ne literally never done this in a car and I don't know how one does it, but I've seen it on TV and I've heard people speaking about it, that you're driving in one direction, you pull the handbrake up, you do a bit of a skiddy and all of a sudden you're facing completely and utterly the other way. And what we have in Jesus's trial and arrest and in a bigger way in his introduction, his birth, his life, is a massive handbrake turn in what's going on in scripture and how the Bible is working. Because the Bible, for the majority, is a story about human being after human being trying their best to be God. Um, but when Jesus arrives on the scene, start of Matthew's Gospel in the New Testament, you have the exact opposite of that. You have a 180 where you have God living as a human. And when you, when you think of like all of the stories right from the start, they are stories of people wanting to replace God, wanting to be in his position, in his seat, um, to have his space in the universe. Like with Adam and Eve, God is the one who makes the rules, but they decide, no, they want to be gods themselves. They want to be the ones who decide how life and everything in the world works. They decide to make their own rules. Um, like later on with the tower in Babylon, um, you've got these people who come together. We were thinking about this on the weekend. They want their name lifted up. They want to be in that seat, that position, that authority, that place of God. Um, and, and, and really, the whole Bible could be, or up until this point, the whole Bible could be described as a collection of stories of people who have tried to, or are in the process of, removing God from the picture and installing themselves instead. Now, I know some people say, well, no, actually, Sammy, in the Bible, a lot of people, they're, they're just worshipping other gods. But I think even in the stories where people have idols, where people have false gods, that is basically us putting ourselves in control. That is those human beings putting themselves in the position where they get to choose who they worship, not worshiping God as he truly is, but instead kind of like robbing the authority from him and saying, OK, I'm going to describe what God is like. I'm ultimately going to be in charge of that. And so the whole Bible, like for ages and ages, is just a collection of these stories of people who in their heart, in one way or another, in big ways, in spectacular ways, in small ways, in kind of um, indirect ways, it's people pretending to be God. And what we get when Jesus arrives is the 180 degree turn. It's the handbrake turn. All of a sudden it's God being a human and and that's true kind of like in the in the, the big the big sense the up here sense okay the meta story 
But what's fascinating to me, and this is really why it's come into my mind this week, is because we see that most specifically and most spectacularly in Jesus's arrest and trial. Um, he's come in, he's given up all the privileges of deity, he's, he's lived a life of confinement in the flesh, he's lived in our brokenness, and by the time we get to his trial and his conviction, we see exactly how much the story is being flipped on its head, exactly how much we're in a 180 here. He goes through the garden, he trusts the father, um, and then there's this line of questioning that comes to him in the trial. Um, questioning, which perhaps goes over our heads, but it's a really pointed line of questioning. They ask him, and they're most infuriated by his answer around questions of deity. They're asking him if he's the Messiah, if he's uh, the son of God. And the only response that Jesus gives, he's, he's silent on other questions, but he gives a response here. He says, that is the truth. What you have said is correct. And then he goes a step further and he says, um, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. It's, it's, a, it's a kind of like a call back to a vision that Daniel had of one who has the power and the authority and the glory and the status of God ruling over everything. And Jesus is basically saying, yeah, all these names you've got, Messiah, son of God, son of man, all these things that point to someone who is God themselves. That is me. Um, and what do they say? They say at the end of it, blasphemy, blasphemy. You've heard it from his own mouth. That is why he should die. And we think maybe, okay, well, blasphemy, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is like, well, we, we think blasphemy is when we, we, we use the Lord's name, when we say Jesus as a swear word or, oh my God, or something like that. And um, when we kind of like rub and run God's name through the mud. But the blasphemy specifically that they think Jesus is speaking here is himself claiming to be God. And we know that because in uh, John chapter 10, it's a really similar occasion, a similar kind of like line of reasoning and questioning. It's not at the trial. It's just during his life. And people um, decide that they're going to try and stone Jesus. And he says, well, what are you stoning me for? Are you stoning me because I'm doing good things? And they say, no, we're stoning you because of blasphemy because you who are a man claim to be God. Do you see how much the story is being tipped up on its head? Um, we have been doing this. The Bible is a collection of loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of people who have are just people, are just image bearers, are just little created creatures pretending, claiming in their own ways to be God. And now, you have God being human in Jesus, and he is standing in our place. He is standing trial for the very crime that we, throughout human history, have been committing. They, they convict him for being a man who claims to be God. The irony is, it's true of him. Uh, he actually is the only person who has ever lived who shouldn't be convicted of this but the story is turned on its head all of a sudden you have Jesus in our place um, a man who is God standing trial for for men and women who their entire lives their entire history their entire existence have been pretending to be God so I just want that thought to be in our heads as we move across to a couple of other readings we're going to flip back to the Old Testament now. So it's going to be in Isaiah chapter 22. Um, I'll mute. I'll let John pick us up and explain where we're going next. So Isaiah 52. We're going to read um, Isaiah 52 and start from verse 13. Again, if you're not so familiar with the Bible, just split it about halfway. Flip to the right a little bit and you'll find Isaiah. This is Isaiah was a prophet writing about 500 years before Jesus uh, was even around on the earth, looking ahead and uh, explaining, forecasting, telling us about Jesus. So let's read from Isaiah chapter 52 and verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will raise, he will be raised and lifted up 
and highly exalted. Just as there, are, there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge of my righteous servant will justice will justify many and he will bear their iniquities therefore i will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors cheers john thank you very much um you know, for lots of people, again, this is a familiar passage. It might not evoke the same kind of um, pictures as the Last Supper, uh, Jesus praying in the garden, Jesus being arrested and what have you. But it's, it's a passage many of us will know and relate to and instantly will see in it, will cure in it, um, the cross of Jesus and his suffering. But I think... It's another passage that's full of irony. Like we finished thinking about the Matthew 26 passage um, and the irony of Jesus being convicted or tried for a crime, um, which is our crime. Um, but this is a passage that's full of irony in the sense that it's at once a gruesome passage. It's at once a grim passage, but at the same time, a gloriously gracious passage, isn't it? There are parts in that text, which I am sure we would prefer to edit out, that we don't like the sound of, we don't like the description of, we don't like the imagery that it puts in our mind, we don't like the thought of it. But then there are other parts in the exact same passage, maybe even the same phrases approached from a different direction, which we would want to print out and hang on our walls and decorate our homes with. It's, it's like a massively mixed piece of the Bible. Even from the start, from verse um, of what John read, from verse 13 of chapter 52, says, see the servant who is being raised up, who is being lifted up and greatly exalted. There's plenty of reasons why we should look at that and we should think straight away that it's speaking about Jesus's physical death about him literally being hoisted up, nailed to the cross, 
and kind of like risen up uh, off the ground, uh, higher up than all the people who are around him. But clearly, in the same words, we're supposed to think not just about the physicalness of Jesus's crucifixion, but how in that he is being, he is being glorified. How his death, his resurrection, and his ascension lift him up, like his name is glorified in all that. So as I say, it's this big mix of gruesomeness, of grimness, and then glorious graciousness. Um, verse 14 um, even spells it out. As horrible as this looks, carries on, doesn't it? It speaks of the kings. It will be wonderful when so many people see it and recognize it and understand it. And we should be, as we read this, just thinking in our minds of exactly how God operates. It's, it's how he's operating here. It's how he's promising he's going to operate. But it's not a new style for God. Much of God's most glorious grace to us always comes through the picking up, the turning upside down of some of our most grotesque actions. He makes beautiful things out of horrible circumstances and situations. Like the primest example, story-wise from the Bible, is the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. It's a horrible story of people treating themselves, each other horrendously. Joseph, the one who had the fantastic robe, the one who Andrew Lloyd Webber made the whole musical about. Um, he is sold into slavery by his brothers. Um, his life gets worse when people falsely accuse him of things and he ends up going to prison and to jail. But at the end of the story, through his life, through what has happened to him, he's able to save um, entire nations and to bless his family. And right at the end, he has this clarity about what's gone on in his life. And he says, you meant it to his brothers, what they had done. You meant it for harm. But God used it for an incredible, incredible good. It's like a massive understatement on both sides of it. And there are hundreds of other places and uh, people's lives, stories in the scripture where basically that is being played out again, where people are doing horrible, horrendous things. They're making terrible decisions. They're rejecting God. They're hating one another. They're living selfishly. But God gloriously, in his grace, uses that for some sort of form of rescue, for some form of love to us. And he takes the horrible, the grotesque, and he turns it into grace. God will, he always has done, interrupt the biggest of rebellions, our most scandalous of sins, and he will weave them into his purposes of bringing rescue and life even to those who have rejected him which is why verse 4 of chapter 53 makes so much sense that he himself bore our sickness why in in verse 5 we can carry on and we can just see and understand what god is up to when it says that he himself in jesus was pierced because of our rebellion that he was crushed because of our um, iniquities that the final rejection of God by man which is what's happening on Good Friday when the people gather together and they cry out crucify him when there's that final rejection of God by people that is the revelation that is the inaction of God's greatest grace to us that is what God would use, it says in Isaiah 53, to bring us peace. Like that's baffling, isn't it? That as we are doing the worst thing that humanity has ever conceived of in terms of rebellion against God, that is what God is using in order to at last bring peace, in order to at last bring healing and oneness. You see, it's gruesome and glorious all at once and we have to see it in terms of the gruesome things that humanity is doing and the glorious things that god is doing verse six we have all gone astray 
We've all turned our own way. He was struck, it says, because of our rebellion. But then when you get down to verse 10, though crushed, it speaks of Jesus that he will see his seed. Like it's speaking of his offspring, the fruit of his labor. It says that, that the father is going to prolong his days, that this death is not going to be the end for him. The outcome won't be him succumbing to death, but will be him defeating death. And then as you move on through Isaiah's passage, written 750 years before the events actually took place, he says that many will be justified, many will be made right, many will be cleansed and accepted through this gruesome, awful act of rebellion and rejection. Good Friday is genuinely a grotesque day. But what is most glorious is that we have a God who takes even the grotesque that we do and he pulls the handbrake up, he spins it around 180, flips it upside down, so that in the most grotesque thing, we have the most glorious um, gift of God's grace, all the G's there in one place given to us in Jesus. So we've got now from Matthew 26, just this idea, this sense that Jesus is suffering. Um, he's accused, he's convicted of a crime which we've committed. We've looked now at Isaiah 52, 53, and considered how God uses very often the wrong things that we have done, turns them on their head to provide goodness and life for us and we're just going to read one more short passage um from john <laughs> chapter 60 i think 19 i beg your pardon the numbers look the same upside down okay i'm going to hand back over to jp and he's going to lead us reading john chapter john chapter 19 and we'll start from verse 17 Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the, sol the, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, divided them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining, this garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there so they soaked a sponge in it put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus's lips when he had received the drink Jesus said it is finished with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit this is God's word thanks John okay this is our last passage so this is where I've got to try and um draw some of these thoughts together and kind of think, well, what does it actually mean for us today? Um, I get these random thoughts through the week. 
as I'm kind of like thinking about passages, as I'm sort of meditating. And I thought there is like a line of reasoning. There is a line of thinking that would say that Jesus, throughout his arrest, throughout his trial, throughout his conviction, is like a passive player in everything that's happening. That he's inactive. That like all of this is being done to him. Um, he's the one being acted on. He's not taking the initiative in any sort of sense. When they come to arrest him, he, he doesn't put up a fight. He, he lets them arrest him. When they question him, when they accuse him of certain things, for the most part, he doesn't say a word. Uh, there's only one or two an uh, questions that he actually responds to and asks answers. For the most part, he keeps silent. When they pronounce the guilty verdict on him when he's finally handed over to Pilate and um, they decide that crucifixion is, is, is going to kind of come down. The sentence is passed down. He doesn't like lodge an appeal. He doesn't claim that a great unjust, an injustice has been done. He's just like inactive, passive. He takes it. So you could definitely read the story, the events of Good Friday and say, Jesus is the victim of a great injustice like he's passive this is all being done to him and it's not fair a man being found innocent by the highest authority and handed over for death like that's what's happening he's not a part of it in the sense of of, of doing he's the part of it in the sense of receiving and that's true and yet we have to read it. We have to see it and understand it as Jesus being anything but passive, as Jesus is being anything but the one who is just sitting back and taking it. Like, so we've already seen it through the words of Isaiah, through his mouth 750 years earlier, however long it was, that this was going to happen. Okay, God, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they have planned this already. They, they, they have anticipated how humans would respond to Jesus coming and living and walking amongst them. And um, it, none of this is a surprise. None of this is an accident. In other places, we hear it from Jesus' own, own lips. That is he who, who gives up his life. No one takes it from him. Um, when he's arguing a little bit with Pilate, uh, arguing is maybe not the right word. Um, he says, if, if I hadn't given you the authority, like if I wasn't allowing this to happen, you would not have the authority to do anything to me. You wouldn't be allowed to touch me even, let alone sentence me to death. Um, Good Friday, everything that is going on, um, even the twisted actions of people who are rejecting God, God is in Jesus actively taking those actions and using them for our good. He definitely is active. He's definitely 100% up to something. And as he approaches Golgotha, we kind of start seeing that more in um, like the ways and the terms that we understand as people. Um, he's verse 17, he's carrying his cross, like he's doing something. He is moving, he is walking towards Golgotha. A little bit further down, verse 25-ish it is, I think, um, he starts looking around the cross and starts taking care of his family. You know, that little bit of dialogue between his mother and John, the disciple that he loves. And then in verse 30, we see it most clearly when he utters the words, it is finished. Now, just stop and think about what he's saying there. He is not saying, I'm finished. It's not like a final cry of exasperation. It's not Jesus saying, I'm expired and then dying. I, I'm done for. I can't take it anymore. That is not what he is saying. He is saying, it is finished. What I've been doing this whole time now is done. So what is it that he's been doing this whole time? Well, remember, it's the handbrake turn, isn't it? It's the flipping the story upside down. It's taking what is grimaced in us 
and using it for grace towards us. Sin, rebellion, rejection of God, where that has led us, well, where, where has it led us? It's led us away from God. It's taken us into a place where we're separated from God. And Jesus in his life and in his death in our place, his sentence for our crimes, if you remember from Matthew 26, he's reversing that course. Jesus was at work his entire life and that intensified on Good Friday around the, around the final hours and the cross. His entire life was bridging the gap that exists between us and God because of our rebellion. His entire life was about healing the sickness that we had let into our lives because of our sin. His entire life was about earning um, the right to once again be in God's presence, which had been taken away from us because of our rebellion and rejection of God. He's achieving our forgiveness on the cross. He's achieving our cleansing on the cross. He's achieving our restoration on the cross. He's defeating our enemies. He has been living as we should have lived, and he has now died as we should have died. And he cries out the culmination of the law, that is finished. It is done. That's what he's saying. That's, that's us kind of getting to see that he's active in it all, that it's purposeful, that it's achieving something that he desires to achieve for us. So what? Um, well, so what? Let's, let's just think now, not like kind of oh, what the Bible says, you know, things that other people did and the story and the narrative. Let's think about our own story. It's all well and good from a distance, seeing things that happened in Genesis, things that happened in Israel's history, even things that happened on Good Friday, as if we are sitting on the sofa watching characters on in an epic drama and I player, okay? Um, we're not that far removed. We ourselves are the ones who have rejected God, in addition to those people who we encounter in the Bible. We ourselves are the ones who Isaiah was describing when he says, we have all gone astray. We ourselves have made ourselves God and him into nothing in our lives. We ourselves, okay, not the characters on the screen in the show, we ourselves seated on the sofas, wherever you are this morning, we ourselves are the ones who are guilty and need Jesus to be doing this for us. You might not find your name in the Bible. Some of us have got biblical names, um, so we do. But you might not find yourself in the pages of scripture, but it is us in the same way, nonetheless, who Jesus was actively living and dying for. It is us who benefit from Jesus's final cry of, it is finished. It was for us that Jesus did all of this so that our grotesque gruesomeness could be taken away and replaced by his glorious grace. Jesus said, no one, no one can come to the Father except through him. And now he's made a way. Now he is the way even for you and I to come to God and to enjoy God and to find life in him rather than death. So what do we do about that then? How do we respond to that? Well, we've, we've got to align ourselves with Jesus, haven't we? We've got to put our trust in him. We've got to stop living as if we or something else that we choose is God. And we acknowledge and recognize and come to Jesus as God. Come to God the Father through Jesus. We've got to have faith in him. We've got to begin to live our lives in such a way that we are raising him up. That we are lifting him up. That we are glorifying and exalting him because we've already lived so much of our lives 
in such a way that we've just been piling guilt on his shoulders. We've got to be people who follow Jesus and have faith in him. And I think that's, that takes an awful lot of things for us. It's got to take sorrow on our part. It's got to, it's got to take remorse on our part for how we have lived in the past, how we have rejected, how maybe even for some of us who have come to faith in Jesus and have continued to live, kind of wanting to have the best of both worlds, seeing Jesus as God, but living as if we are. It's going to take sorrow and remorse. We'd say repentance for those things. It's got to take thankfulness as well. We can't come to Good Friday. We can't understand everything that Jesus is doing and, and, and not be thankful, can we? It's got, to, it's got to take joy, like fantasticness, hallelujah, gloriousness of what Jesus has done in our place. It's got to take us, like in the cold light of day, looking at Good Friday and saying, that is a gruesome day. That is the worst in humanity, where people twisted in on themselves so full of themselves so full of desire to be on top and in charge that they would arrest an innocent man that they would accuse him of their own crimes that they would find no guilt in him and yet sentence him to death good friday is a gruesome day but god has pulled the handbrake up and he's made it that most glorious day as well it finishes with the words it is finished it is done the healing the restoration the forgiveness all those things that he said and promised he was going to do finally at last can be ours through faith in jesus trust it follow it believe it live it enjoy it give thanks for it let's pray together lord god thank you for conceiving thank you for executing this great glorious plan of rescue thank you for taking all of our selfishness all of our uh, all of our inwardness and selflessly dying in our place thank you for making a way by your life and your death through our death into true life for the father Lord God, I pray that you would help each one of us, wherever we identify ourselves in the story, to be people who are moving forward today in repentance, moving forward in confession, moving forward in thankfulness, moving forward in following you and lifting you up. Thank you so much. Amen. Amen. Right. Okay. We are going to try and sing together. Now, I say try because this is a new kind of technical uh, thing. I'm going to pick up the guitar. John, you can stay on me. We, we don't want to have like delays. You've got a beautiful voice, no, no offense. I'm going to try and share my screen. Um, you're going to see the chords uh, and what have you of um, what we'll be singing. Jesus paid it all, hopefully. Oh, can I get there? Where is... There it is. Okay. Hopefully you know the tune. Um, and we'll, we'll sing it together. I'll try my best. Can you Just zoom in? Sort of Say that again? Can you zoom it in and make it a bit bigger? Um, I'm not sure that I can, actually. Let's have a look. Um, I can, this is the kind of the best I can do. Okay, is that big enough, John? Yeah, that's better. That's better. Let's have a look. See if that helps at all. Oh, there you go. We got a couple of. Yeah. Okay, so it's all up on the screen there. We should be able to go. Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, find in me thine all in all. 
after crimson stain he washed it white as snow oh now indeed i find thy power and thine alone can change the leper's cause and melt the heart of stone jesus paid it all lord to him i owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow and when before the throne i stand in him complete jesus died my soul to save my lips shall still repeat jesus paid it all to him i owe sin had left a crimson saying he washed it white as snow jesus paid it all Amen. Let's uh, let's pray as we go. Lord God, we thank you that you have paid it all, that you've given the blood of your own son um, to wash our sins away and that we might know your closeness father we might be your own children uh, thank you that you've washed us white as snow that we can um, have confidence in your presence that we can have joy in knowing you lord that we can have peace and know all of our sins all of our brokenness all of our failures all of our dirt uh, all of our uh, grime washed away lord we thank you that you are so good to us like that thank you that we can read these words lord as we bring all of these confessions to you we thank you that we read that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. We thank you that, Lord Jesus, by your wounds, we have been healed. Father, would you send us out as we look forward to celebrating Christ's resurrection on Sunday? Would you send us out to dwell on this cross, to kneel before it, to bring us um, to bring our sins before it daily, Lord, and to be raised up, lifted up, filled with your spirit and sent on our way rejoicing to live and serve you all of our days. Amen.